Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open up God's word of truth, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're all in fellowship, ready to study, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us the promises in your word and that it is through the promises and the principles that you reveal to us that we are enabled to uh, move forward in our spiritual life as we learn to trust in you, realize the full extent of your grace provision, that nothing has been left out, that you have not only uh, saved us in, for, from every sin and from all judgment, but you have also given us everything we need for the spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, we might be strengthened and encouraged, realizing that you have given us everything, but the implementation of that which you have provided is up to us, and therefore this is stimulus to us to continue to study, to continue to think through what you have revealed to us, that we might constantly be reminded of the tremendous truths that are in your word and the tremendous skills that you've given us and the the, uh, spiritual problem-solving devices that we have that we can use to uh, protect ourselves and to be strong in the midst of both a very pagan world and in the midst of the devil's world. We pray as we study these things tonight, we'll be encouraged and strengthened and motivated to move, move forward in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In First Kings, as we have gone through this study of the life of Solomon, we've hit Solomon's tremendous failure because of his inability to pass the prosperity test, and a failure that is not uncommon. It is extremely common for people, once they become somewhat prosperous, whatever that means, once they feel like there's no threats, no immediate problems, no difficulties, it's easy to coast. It's easy to say, I'm just going to sit back and relax, and we slip spiritually into neutral, but we often fail to realize the spiritual life is always momentum on an uphill slope. And once we slip into neutral, we start regressing very uh, quickly. We may not have a quick regression, but we will immediately start regressing if we don't pay attention to going forward. God has given us various skills to use in the spiritual life to stay in fellowship and to keep going forward. These skills I've called stress busters. They've been called problem-solving devices. But they're basically a, a synthesis of the teaching in Scripture on how Christians can continue to stay in focus and stay in uh, with a forward momentum in the spiritual life. 
They are a protection, a defensive protection against the external enemies that we have. And the three enemies every believer has are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is an external enemy. The devil is an external enemy. The sin nature, however, the flesh, is an internal enemy. And it is against even the flesh that these problem-solving devices give us protection. And I often use this illustration of a soul fortress, which I developed out of terminology in the Psalms, where God is compared to our bulwark. We use that same terminology in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's used in a number of other hymns that he is our rock, he is our fortification, these kinds of things. And so we've had this developed by a friend of mine who went in and uh, redesigned the soul fortress. And this is what protects us from all of the attacks against the soul, whether they're external enemy, the world system, or the devil, or the internal enemy of our own sin nature. So we're going through this brief review, foundations, the filling of the Spirit. When we get out of fellowship, we're ejected from the fortress, and we're in a position of spiritual vulnerability. We get back in through the drawbridge of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. And when our soul is residing behind this fortification of these doctrines and these spiritual skills, we stay in fellowship, and we're focused on the Word and utilizing the Word to face the onslaughts, the problems, the difficulties of life. It's the basic skills relate to the faith rest drill, which is taking some sort of promise that God has given us, principles, doctrines, and applying them to the situation and trusting that God is going to do what he says he will do in his word. And this can be primarily based on taking promises, but sometimes we can just think through certain uh, rationales that we find in the scripture and think through what the Bible teaches about certain things by taking uh, principles or promises taught here, taught there, taught in different places and putting them together together. And it is a matter of trusting God. That's the faith part where we focus on what God has said and trust him. And then the rest part is where we relax. We cast our care upon him, and now we're going to relax, and we're going to let him take care of it. And we're not going to just grab it and take it back two seconds later, which is what we all do at times. And then we have to go through the process. No, I'm going to trust God for it. Five minutes later, we start worrying about it, so we take it back. Uh, it's a process to learn how to put these things into practice. Then we studied grace orientation, learning to align our thinking with grace. And as we align our thinking with grace, it transforms our character so that as part of our character, we become gracious people. We operate on graciousness, kindness. This relates to principles such as a relaxed mental attitude. It relates to teachability. If you're not, you can't be grace oriented if you're not humble. You can't have, you can't be teachable if you're not humble. So humility, teachability, uh, relaxed mental attitude, all of these relate to grace orientation. Then we have doctrinal orientation, which is aligning our thinking with what the Word of God says. If we're not thinking, biblically, then we're thinking non-biblically. We're letting the world and the values of the culture around us influence our thinking. 
And the church has had just such a terrible history of this. And by that, by the term of the church, I mean in the history of Christianity. And as you study the history of Christianity, you see how in every generation, the theology, the leadership, the practices tend to be so heavily influenced by the trends, the popular things that are going on, the popular philosophies of the day, and it's very rare that you find churches or denominations or groups of believers who are able to uh, truly set themselves apart by their adherence to the truth. And, and we all fall prey to that to some degree or another because we grow up in cultures, whether it's an Asian culture, whether it's a mystical culture, whether it's a religious culture, whether it's an African culture, European culture, whatever it may be. We all have this problem that we get so influenced by parents, peers, professors as we grow up that we are unaware of how many ideas that we have adopted as part of our personal philosophy that are really at odds with the Word of God. They seem like common sense to us because they are common to our background, our experience, those around us. But they are often get challenged uh, by the Word. And the more the church, the group of believers in an, a, a society get away from the Word of God, the more they're influenced by the culture. And so what goes on inside of local churches doesn't seem to be a whole lot different from what goes on outside of the church, except it may be a little bit more moral. It may be, uh, it has a facade of, of Christianity to it, but it may not be uh, very much different. So doctrinal orientation means that we really let our core thinking, the foundation of our thinking, be changed by the Word of God. Then we have, those are the first five. We got that far last time. Then we have the more advanced, more mature uh, spiritual skills, personal sense of destiny, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and then uh, inner happiness. These are the, the advancements. Now, last time I got through the first part. This time I want to look at the second five. But before we get there, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. In Ephesians 6, Paul's coming to the conclusion for this epistle, and he reminds them that in light of all that he has said, that the believer needs to think about his own spiritual life as a battle, as a struggle. And again and again, the Apostle Paul will use military and battle metaphors to illustrate what is going on in the believer's life because it is a battle. It is an ongoing struggle. Uh, in verse 10, he says, uh, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is it is an either-or position. Now, a lot of people don't like to hear that. They think, well, we can take the Bible, and is it wonderful that we've learned how to handle various uh, emotional difficulties and problems with modern psychology and counseling techniques, and when we have marriage problems, when we have problems raising children, uh, these things, we, can, um, we have 
counseling to go to and psychotherapy to go to. You know, the more, and, and I've gone through all kinds of stuff with, related to counseling training and uh, various uh, psychotherapy models that have been used in Christianity. And I remember some years ago now, about 20 years ago, I was up in Colorado Springs attending a uh, seminar on counseling methodology, and I was just really trying to think through what's biblical, what's not. Is there any any sense that any of this relates to Christianity? And uh, as I thought about and and we're watching various videos of couples who were having, going through marriage counseling is very, I don't know whether it's a courageous or foolish couple to have been willing to allow their marriage counseling sessions to have been videotaped and then use that before uh, one and all so that everybody could could. Uh, learn or be trained on the basis of what was going on in their counseling sessions. But I got to watch and I said, you know, the problem here is that in a lot of cases, the problems these two people have with relating to each other, and I had seen several different couples, so it just doesn't come out of this one situation. It basically boils down to their parents didn't teach them how to play well with others, didn't teach them good manners, didn't teach them how to stop talking and listen to someone else. Just fundamental, everyday good manners and proper behavior and etiquette. And if people had that and used that instead of being so selfish and self-absorbed and arrogant all the time, then probably 90% of marriages would be saved and 90% of marriage counselors would be out of work. Because we don't live in a world today where parents are properly training their children to do these kinds of things, to, to live with other people. They're not, they don't discipline them. They don't understand that they, their role and responsibility is to take some, some small child, an infant, and to train them and to teach them how to live and how, what to do and what not to do. And that the only way that that child's ever going to learn to live in an unselfish manner, the only way that child is going to learn to be disciplined, to have self-discipline, to listen to other people, to be courteous and thoughtful of others, is for the parents to drill it into them and to teach them and to train them that way. So a a lot could just be solved by just basic uh, human behavior 101 doesn't have anything to do with with spirituality, just good matters, being courteous towards others, listening, things of that nature. And then beyond that, as believers, it comes down to just related to the sin, sin nature. I, I don't think any of us who were here the day that George Meisinger gave his talk on uh, uh, how the uh, lust, the, those who were here already laughing, uh, how the <coughs> lust of the flesh war against the soul, and he played this clip from an old Bob Newhart show. You remember Bob Newhart when he was a psychotherapist. And this lady came in, and she's complaining to him about all of her problems, and she goes through the whole thing. And he just looks at her, and he says, Well, I have two words for you. Stop it! <laughs> just stop it! And he, just, he went on. It was just, it is a, it's a hilarious episode, but a lot of people just need to learn personal self-discipline to stop certain things that they're doing in terms of sin and self-indulgence and to start doing what the Bible says. The reason it's hard, and I've heard 
Christians whine over the years about, how, oh, it's just so hard to live the Christian life. It's hard is because you really don't want to do it. You want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to uh, uh, fulfill your, the lust of your soul and at the same time have this facade of spirituality. You want to be self-indulgent and self-absorbed and rather than uh, focused on God where he's the only one that matters. So it is a struggle. It's a battle because we struggle with these enemies. And the issue is to be strong in the power of God and not in our power, not in human skills, human techniques, these kinds of things, but to focus on the, the basic skills that God has given us. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the, the key word that you see through this passage is either the word stand or withstand. And they are both based on the same Greek word, either histemi or antistemi. Antistemi has more the idea of standing against something, but these are defensive terms. It doesn't say, uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to attack the devil and defeat him. That's not the believer's job. The believer is to stand firm in the provision of God. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, we do not wrestle, and the word that is used there is a very strong word uh, that has the connotation of, of a battle, a struggle. It is not just something that is um, a little bit inconvenient or difficult. It is, uh, it is a hand-to-hand combat at times. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the ruler of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, ultimately, the battle is against a cosmic system led and orchestrated by Satan who is promoting ideas and values and strategies that are... Uh, that are sympathetic to our sin nature so that it's very easy for us to hear about trying to solve problems this way or that way or another way and say, oh, that ought to work, because it's easier to do that than to study the Word, to study the Word, to be in Bible class three times a week, to listen to uh, a, a tape or an MP3. We don't have tapes so much anymore, but listen to a lesson one way or the other, three or four times a week. I think several people on our Israel trip were challenged because a a lady came along on our trip uh, who's from Australia. And she, even on the trip, I think she was managing to listen to two or three Bible classes a day. Okay? Everybody feel convicted? I know I do. So she was, and she does this all the time, year in and year out, day after day after day. And that keeps you focused on the Word. Now, you may not have time to do it two or three times a day. You may have time to catch snatches here or there, whatever your situation is, but it's making it a priority. So we recognize that it's a constant battle. Now, Paul reminds the Ephesians that the solution is putting on the whole armor of God, verse 11. Verse 13, taking up the whole armor of of God that you can withstand, that you're able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then he describes it in terms of the armor of the uh, typical Roman soldier. Now, 
he uses that metaphor and he talks about the helmet and he talks about the uh, girding on your, your, your waist with the belt of truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, putting, uh, putting on the, on your feet the, uh, the gospel of peace and taking the shield of faith. All of these are defensive. Even the sword of the spirit is defensive. It's a machaira. The rompia was the broadsword that was the more offensive weapon. But a machaira was often used in, in defense. As the enemy closed with you, you would use the machaira defensively and as a counterattack, not in terms of, not as an original offensive weapon. And this is the way that Jesus uses the word in his testing in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 3 and Luke where he goes into the wilderness in Luke 4 where he goes into the wilderness and led by the Spirit and then he faces the three temptations and each response is a quote from Scripture. See, he counters the temptation with a quote from Scripture. So he's using the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, as a counter to the attack from outside. He is not engaged in an offensive campaign. That's the role of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the believer's job to take up this defensive position. So Paul uses this same kind of metaphor. He uses armor here, but these aren't to be taken as hard and fast categories that the breastplate is always the breastplate of righteousness or the sword of the Spirit is always true. He just He just takes that analogy and builds it out here. Uh, and then uh, he uses the same analogy but changes the terms over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for example. 1 uh, Thess chapter 5, verse 8, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober. That doesn't mean not to have a blood alcohol level higher than 0.0. .0. It means to be thinking objectively on the basis of the Word of God. That's what that word uh, for sober means. It means to be able to think clearly and objectively without being influenced by the thinking of the world. But those of, uh, let, uh, those of us who have the day be sober, be thinking objectively on the basis of God's Word, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Well, wait a minute. Paul, I thought it was a breastplate of righteousness. Well, see, he's just shifted the metaphor a little bit. The point that, he, that I'm making here is that the, the, the metaphor that Paul is using is that the believer needs to be protected by something that God provides. And he just uses the armor of a soldier first in one place. He relates it to one set of principles in another place to another set of principles. But he's making the same basic point, and that is that the believer is protected by that which God provides, and it's in God's power and God's might that the believer is enabled to stand fast in the midst of the onslaught of the enemy. So this is no different from the psalmist discussion about God as our bulwark, our rock, our fortress, uh, no different from what I've developed here in terms of a fortress for the soul. Uh, these aren't hard and fast categories. These, these ten uh, spiritual skills are not defined in a particular chapter of the Bible in this way. This is a synthesis, though, and a masterful synthesis of what the scripture, of the totality of what the scripture says on the spiritual life. And it's a great 
teaching tool and a great pedagogical device to help us control this vast amount of instruction that the Bible has to boil it down and to be able to reduce and summarize the Christian life in terms of these ten basic spiritual skills. Now, you can take each one of these, and I've done this in the past, and break them down into four or five or six subcategories and break each of those down even more. And there have been different studies, and on the Dean Bible website, there's now posted a an index, and this uh, wonderful lady up in Pennsylvania has spent way too much time cataloging every word that comes out of my mouth. It's scary. And indexing it, and I don't. the last time I looked at it, it was about 270 or 280 pages long. And so anything you want to look up and say, well, I wonder where uh, we have a more in-depth study of personal love for God, or where is there a more in-depth study of the filling of the Holy Spirit or walking by the Spirit? Where is there a more in-depth study of, of the faith rest drill? Well, you can go to that index and look it up and find the different series where I have taken different parts of these and expanded upon them, and that way you can get a more detailed study and analysis. But uh, I thought in terms of First Kings here, just to synthesize this for us, just to summarize it in a couple of lessons, is very important. It gives us a, a, re, a great encouragement and reminder that God solves all of our problems, and whether they're, it's whether it involves facing the good things in life and prosperity, or whether it's involving the less pleasant and difficult times of life, to be reminded that God supplies everything for us. And as the Apostle Paul noted in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you examine the context of that passage in Philippians, Paul is talking about the fact that he has learned how to both do without and how to do with much. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to go through, I know how to go through adversity, and I know how to go through prosperity. Everywhere and in all things. What's he talking about? He's talking about whether I'm dealing with tests of adversity or tests of prosperity. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned. See, it's a process. We learn a little here, a little there, as Isaiah says, line upon line, precept upon precept. It is a constant growing process. And he says, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. I have learned how to be full. In other words, I've learned how to handle prosperity. It doesn't come easy. It's a learning process. I've learned how to do with a lot and be relaxed and still trust God and I've learned how to be hungry. I've learned how to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the conclusion, is I can face any and all circumstances, whether it's prosperity or adversity, because I have God has taken me through this, this series of situations in life to teach me how to trust him, and this is how we are to respond. So last time I finished up, by looking at doctrinal orientation. And what I've been trying to do in this series is just to simply give us some basic points about each one of these categories and three or four 
key scriptures for each category, and then just some ideas on application just to help us put the whole thing together. So going back to pick up where we ended last time, doctrinal orientation is aligning our thinking to the reality of God's word. God's word, God defines reality. When he created the heavens and the earth and he created the Garden of Eden and he placed all these trees there to provide food and nourishment for Adam and Eve, he said, you can eat from all the trees but one. See, he's defining reality. When Eve came along and said, no, that's not true, I'm going to make reality what I want it to be, and I'm going to redesign, re-engineer reality so that nothing's going to really happen to me, and I'm not going to die when I eat that tree. That's what we all do when we sin. We basically, at that point, we're re-engineering reality and saying sin isn't what God says it is, and I can do whatever I want to. So doctrinal orientation is when we come back and we align our thinking to the reality of God's word, creation, and plan, that things are what they are because God says that's what they are. So doctrine then must become a way of life, not just something else we do. That is a hard thing for people to come come to. You see this uh, in, in people and your friends, your family. They You know they know the word's important, but they just can't quite recognize that it's not just something that's just another thing in my life along with work and school and and friends, but it is everything, and none of those other details have meaning if I'm not focused on doctrine day in and day out. Uh, Doctrine includes the entire realm of biblical teaching. There's so many people today who say, well, you know, I don't want to go to church and learn about how to think. I just want something real practical. I need to learn how to handle money better. I need to learn how to, how to be more successful. I need to learn this or that. But what, what lies behind the learning of how to have a happy marriage or how to raise kids or how to uh, be more successful in life is learning to, to the very foundation of how you think and approach the issues of life. So when things happen, you learn how to think about them correctly and not react emotionally, not think about them superficially or trivially, not respond out of just how it makes me feel. So doctrine includes the entire realm of Bible teaching because as we study all of these different things, it forms different elements within our soul. When you study about the Noahic flood, you may or may not be interested in creation and evolution. I'm always fascinated by that. But the more you study something like that in detail, or you go through the, what I always think people would probably consider to be one of the more, let's say, boring sections of Scripture, the genealogies of Genesis 10 and 11, the table of nations, you really take that apart in detail. What you should come away with is, boy, even though that seems boring, it tells me so much about the foundation of history and how everything else works out that as a result of studying it, I now have a greater appreciation for the trustworthiness and the veracity of God's word. It really, uh, your trust in God's word, your appreciation for God's word as being true is enhanced, and that happens in so many doctrines. 
and you may study something that seems very abstract to you in terms of some aspect of theology. But as you get into the details of it, you realize that it's helping you form a slightly more correct understanding and appreciation of who God is and why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, learning and becoming re-educated is not easy. It's not simple. It takes perseverance. So doctrine has to be become a way of life, and we have to study the entire realm of biblical teaching. And only then will the Word teach us how to think, how to react, how to problem-solve, how to prioritize, and how to relate to the world, its systems, people, and circumstances. We looked at passages like 2 Peter 3.18. We grow by means of knowledge. We grow by means of the grace and knowledge. It's not anti-knowledge or anti-rational. It is knowledge, Romans 12.2 as well. Now we come to trying to put some of this together. And I've created these in the past. I don't think any of you have really seen these charts. It's been a long time since I've taught through this. But we have the, these ten skills, these ten problem-solving devices. And when we have them in place... It, this provides that bulwark so that as long as we're applying them, we stay in fellowship. What, we, what the Bible calls abiding in Christ, the Bible also calls it walking in the light, walking by the Spirit. The whole action of applying the Word is being, the ongoing ministry, the filling of the Spirit. All of this terminology uh, relates to staying in the fellowship, being in a position of spiritual growth. But the bottom line is it still comes down to our volition. We have to decide to walk by the Spirit. That's why these are commands. Walk by the Spirit. Walk in the light. Be filled by means of the Spirit. When we stop depending on the Spirit, then it's, we're in an ejection seat and we're immediately ejected out of the soul fortress. We're ejected out of fellowship and we'll then sin because we're no longer being dependent upon God. Somebody asked me the question the other day that said, well, you know, I remember years ago thinking through a lot of this, and there was this debate that used to come up with other people. This guy was in Campus Crusade. So the other Campus Crusade would say, well, is it a sin to stop depending on God? Or does the sin come after that? Well, and I took him to Galatians 5.18. Galatians 5.18 says, walk by means of the Spirit, and it's impossible for you to sin. Fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that means the act where you're, you decide to quit depending isn't a sin in and of itself, but it immediately puts you, it, it shifts you from the Holy Spirit gear, you put the clutch in and you shift it to the sin nature gear. And so the automatic result from that is that you're going to start sinning. If you couldn't sin when you're walking by the Spirit, I mean, if you couldn't stop walking by the Spirit, if stopping that ongoing dependence was a sin, then you could never do it. You'd be locked into walking by the Spirit. So you've got to draw that distinction there. But bottom line is it depends on your volition. Now, another way to look at this is in terms of how these relate to different stages of our spiritual growth. In the Gospel of, uh, I mean, the first epistle of John, in the second chapter around verse, um, around verse 18, 19, talks about, uh, addresses you little children, 
talks about you young men, you fathers. And so we get these three categories of spiritual growth, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adulthood. And these basic skills are related to moving through spiritual infancy. And once we get to this point, where as we learn these three, these three, the faith, restoration, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, all hang together. They, they work in a way that where there's an interconnection. It's not like, well, this is the faith rest drill. So I'm, I got grace orientation and somebody does something to me and I need to treat them in grace because of the word. Why? Because the word says to. Well, see, that's an application of the faith rest drill. So the three interact together. Same thing with doctrinal orientation. When I'm claiming a promise, I'm orienting my mind to the doctrine that's in the promise. So doctrinal orientation and grace orientation and faith rest drill all interconnect and are all interdependent. So I have them highlighted with this, uh, with this box. And then as we go forward, the next stage is to where we're motivated. Our motivation changes as we grow. Same thing happened when you think, think about the analogy with you when you were, when you were small, when you were growing up. And your motivation when you were, let's say, from three through about 13 or 14. What, how were you motivated to do things? And then think about how you became motivated to do things when you got a little older, when you were 15, 16, 17, 18, or 19. At some point in there, as you're transitioning through adolescence, there's something within you that begins to motivate you rather than some of the things that motivated you as a child. And as you begin to grow, you're, there's a shift, and that's what happens in spiritual adolescence. We suddenly focus on, we begin to understand what God's really doing in training us and preparing us to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom, and that we're actually going somewhere and that everything that's happened in life, God is orchestrating in such a way as to train us so that we can be uh, better administrators, rulers, priests, kings with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. So we begin to get a personal sense of our eternal destiny. That takes us through adolescence and then on into uh, maturity, and we'll come back and look at the rest of that as we go along. Now, in this slide... What I'm trying to develop here, and I worked on this this afternoon, is to show the interrelationship between the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Don't think of these as three compartments that are completely separate. They're, they're just looking at, in some way, different aspects of the same basic dynamics or certain things that are distinct and being emphasized but they're all related to realizing the priority of God's word in our life and that we can trust God to do what he says to do, and we need to implement that in our lives. And as we master these skills to think in terms of trusting God in any and every situation to relying upon what he's provided in grace and then how that relates to other people, and then doctrinal orientation, just aligning ourselves to his plans and purposes, these then develop us 
in terms of our maturity through the personal sense of our eternal destiny and then on into the more advanced uh, spiritual skills, personal love for God, uh, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and um, and those three all interconnect and work together just like the lower three do. And then I think the result of all of this is the is the happiness that we have, the real joy that is ours in our personal life. So I thought this helps communicate that, that, that these work in a more dynamic way and they're not just sort of a, a static one thing leads to the next, then leads to the other, but they, they all work and they are interdependent and interconnected. Okay, let's look at the next five briefly. Personal sense of our eternal destiny. We recognize at this stage that the destiny of every believer, every church-age believer, is to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Revelation 1.6 and 5.10. That's our destiny. We are in a training ground. God is taking us through a boot camp, as it were, in this world where we're going to face problems internally with the sin nature and externally with the thinking of the world and with the devil so that when we get in a position in the millennial kingdom of responsibility, we've been trained to think biblically and are prepared to handle that res- the responsibilities that he's going to give us. And he's going to be able to give us responsibilities perfectly. There's not going to be a Peter principle there where people are promoted to the level of their most in, uh, inability to, to operate. Uh, their most ineffectiveness. Uh, he's going to know precisely what, who we are, what we can do, and what we can't do. That also relates to the idea that we saw in Revelation uh, 2 and 3 where, some Christian, where everybody's going to get a new name, a name that no one else knows. God is going to be able to identify us perfectly and give us just the name uh, that, that is unique. No one else has, and it uniquely manifests, manifests the strengths and weaknesses that each one of us has. So there's a destiny that God is preparing us for. Second, when we think about this, we realize that every believer is going to be evaluated for rewards and responsibilities at the judgment seat of Christ. There is accountability. This, this does away with the idea of antinomianism. There's no law or licentiousness that just because Christ paid for all our sins, now I can live my life however I want to, and it really doesn't matter because I'm going to get to heaven. It also does away with the uh, ridiculous thing I've heard so many people say over the years, well, I don't care where I am in heaven as long as I'm there. That's not a biblical perspective. Now, you may not realize this, but this teaching on rewards can be uh, somewhat divisive. I was talking to a pastor recently who has been having a tough time with several families in his church because he was teaching on rewards. And these people had actually been under ministries in most of their lives where they had uh, heard this, but he was taking it to a little different level. And two or three, these two or three families all eventually left the church and has created quite a problem for him. So, a lot of people don't like this. They want to think that somehow uh, God's just sort of like a big old grandfather or grandmother, and it doesn't really matter what we do as long as Christ already paid for the sin, so God's just going to go tut, 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 and that's okay, and let us do 
whatever we want to get away with. But there's a training process here. We have to think in terms of, of the total overview of what God's given in terms of the future destiny of history. So, therefore, we must learn to live in light of this future destiny. This is what Peter does in the first chapter of First Peter, and it's summarized towards the, towards the middle. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. He's already talked earlier in the chapter about our inheritance that's reserved for us undefiled in heaven. But now he talks about the fact that in order to realize all of that inheritance, uh, we have to conduct ourselves. This is the uh, command here. It's interesting, just I think it was yesterday, uh, I have a group of pastors that meet and uh, here on uh, the last Monday of every month, and we go through various things, d- training, developing our study skills and theology. And we've been going through First Peter, just teaching how to do basic exegesis of these verses. And so our passage yesterday was on First Peter one seventeen to twenty one. And if you look at it in the English, it's usually broken into two sentences, but it's one thought. It's one thought in the original Greek, and that thought, everything in those verses revolves around the command to conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, your time on earth, in fear, in reverential awe of God, because God is going to judge us. And if you look at 1 Peter 1.18, it then begins in the English, it's, it's a rather weak translation of the participle, knowing that you have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your empty manner of life, but with the precious blood of a lamb uh, without spot or blemish from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is that we're able to conduct ourselves through the time of our stay here in fear because we understand the economic transaction that occurred on the cross and how valuable the blood of Christ is in terms of the death of Christ in paying for our sins. And the more you study the, the realities of, of salvation and everything that God has done for us in salvation, the more we realize how valuable our salvation is and, and what Christ did on the cross. And because that's secure, we then can go to the next level which has to do with conducting ourselves, our living our life on the basis of a reverential fear because we recognize there's ultimate accountability. Revelation 22:12, Jesus says at the end of Revelation, which is all about judgment, judgment for believers in Revelation 2 and 3, judgment on the unbelievers and the earth dwellers in Revelation uh, 5 through 19, uh, judgment on Satan and the, the demons, Revelation, uh, at the beginning of Revelation 20 and the end of Revelation 20, the judgment seat of, I mean, the, the uh, great white throne judgment. And in Revelation 22:12 at the close, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. That's not salvation. That is talking about rewards for believers. Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine if we'll go to heaven, but to determine our roles and responsibilities once we're there. Uh, appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this leads to the uh, next part of the soul fortress, the personal sense of eternal destiny. 
Then we get into two that have to do with love. And this, of course, I could spend weeks on either one. I'm not. The whole concept of love is something that is terribly, terribly misunderstood today in our culture. Love is defined in terms of how does it make your heart feel. And now you can get books on how to, so that you can tell what your love language is. It's really funny. The other day I called up my friend, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Ice, who is teaching at Liberty University, and Liberty has some good things about it, like Randy Price and Tommy Ice, and also has a lot of silly stuff that goes along up there, like a lot of Bible colleges. And they just had a big conference on uh, on compassion. And so I wanted to call him up and find out how compassionate his heart was. And I was giving him a hard time. I said, well, you're going to go out and learn what your love language is. Well, that's a big thing in silly circles today because they define love in wrong ways. And if you go to the dictionary, you won't get a good definition of love. You go to Webster's, you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, it starts with love is a feeling. Well, that's not where you start to define love. You start to define love in John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. It's not for God so loved the world. So is a... um, it's a, a word of magnitude. It's not so much. The Greek word there is hutos, and it has the idea of in this manner, in this way. There's going to be an illustration for us of what God's love is. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. That's what love is. Love is doing that which is right and best for the object of your love. It is not based on feeling. If Jesus based his love for the church on feeling he would not have gone to the cross because he wasn't feeling very good when he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read the accounts in the Gospels, he is in emotional turmoil. Now, that tells us one thing, that it's not wrong to be in emotional turmoil. That's not a sin. The sin is what you do with the emotional turmoil. That's where people get into sin. But there are times in life when when there is a struggle within our soul over the circumstances of life. And there's nothing wrong with that. That in and of itself simply relates to our, our creatureliness, our humanity. And that was the humanity of Jesus looking at what he was going to go through on the cross and not wanting to go through it. That was not something that was... Uh, that 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 his humanity had an affinity for, but he chose to do it. That's love. So it has to do with a mental attitude, a mindset, and that mindset is based on certain realities. So when we look at love, we have personal love for God, which develops only as the believer learns about God. So the first principle is, as the believer learns about God and all that God has provided for him, appreciation increases along with the desire to obey God and to serve him. It takes time to develop love for God. You may say, oh, well, you know, I've always loved loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if even a three-year-old looks at his parents and says, Mommy, I love you. But is that love the same as a mature 28-year-old who understands all that his parents have done and sacrificed and provided in order for his training and his education and his clothes and everything that went into preparing him for an adulthood? Is it the same kind of love? 
No, it's not. One is just simply an, a, a very basic child's appreciation, but it's not really love, not like the, the mature love of the adult. So it takes time. When Philip was talking to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, 8, 9, and 10, uh, Philip says there's this interchange there between Peter and Jesus and Philip, and, and Jesus is saying that he's going to go to the Father, and Peter says, well, how do we know how to get there? And in the process, Jesus talks about that he, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Philip says, like he didn't even hear that. He wasn't listening. He says, well, Lord, show us the Father. And the Lord turns to him and said, Peter, I mean, Philip, have you been with me so long that you have not come to know me? See, and then later in First John, John develops this idea that to love God, we have to know his, we obey his commandments and to Love God, we have to come to know him. It is a process of, of learning. So as the believer learns about God, that only comes through studying the word. Love for God is therefore measured by obedience, not emotion, not by how, uh, not by those warm fuzzies that people get. Third, love for God motivates the believer then to press on to spiritual maturity because we under the more we learn, the more we appreciate all that God has supplied us and provided for us. A couple of passages, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Even in the Old Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 11, 1. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Notice the connection between love and obedience. You shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Joshua 23.10, Joshua says, um, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. I think I got the wrong verse in there. I think I want to Deuteronomy. Um, Joshua 23.11, oh, yeah, it's 10 and 11. Joshua, as he promised you, therefore, Joshua says, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. See, the promise is you will have victory. Therefore, be careful. Watch. Look at how you think and how you live that you love the Lord your God. And how do you know you love the Lord your God? Because you're obeying him. And how, do you, how are you going to have victory in the Christian life? By obeying him because you love him. These are all interconnected. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There's that connection again in the New Testament as well. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That has to do with fellowship. He who does not love me, John 14:24, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So we have the next problem-solving device, the personal love for God. Unconditional love for man or impersonal love for all mankind is the next category. This is difficult for a lot of people. A lot of people don't like the term impersonal love because they think that means it's cold, it's detached, it's impersonal. Well, that's one nuance for impersonal. Another nuance for impersonal is that it doesn't demand a personal relationship. And that's the idea here, is that this is a love that is shown to people whether you have a personal relationship with them or not. The cashier at the grocery store, 
uh, the person who works behind the counter at the laundry who didn't get the stain out of your uh, favorite blouse or your favorite suit or whatever and not uh, uh, getting mad at them, the person who cuts you off in traffic. So you don't have a personal relationship with these people, but you deal with them in the same love you would if it was someone who was very close, near and dear to you. And have you ever noticed how with some people that are in our lives, we're willing to forgive them anything. It doesn't matter what they do. We're going to cut them slack, and we're going to forgive them. And there's other people in our life that they just step one millimeter out of line, and we're ready to just cut them off completely and not have anything else to do with them. So impersonal love is the kind of love that God has for the believer. And Ephesians 4 talks about we are to be gracious to one another. The word there isn't forgive one another for as God in Christ's sake forgave you. The word that's usually translated forgave is charizomai, meaning be gracious to one another. As God in Christ's sake has forgiven us and has been gracious to us. So we're to treat others the same way we would want God to, that God does treat us. So it's love based on who God is and what Christ did for us on the cross. Second, the impersonal, which I already pointed out, emphasizes that no personal relationship is required. Unconditional means we treat people with kindness, generosity, and graciousness, no matter what their behavior, and without expecting anything in return. We're going to be kind to them even though they may still insult us, they may not do what we want them to do, they may treat us uh, in a uh, very wrong manner. Uh, John 13, 34, and 35 is the key verse here. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Not the Old Testament said that the uh, command was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, your neighbor may or may not be a believer. Here it's to love one another, meaning believers, as I have loved you. Not like you love yourself, but as Christ loved us. That's the pattern, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love uh, one for another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, that is being gracious toward one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that's the um, impersonal love for all mankind. We have two more to go, and I will finish them tonight. It's one minute to nine. Occupation with Christ. This is focusing our thinking in terms of imitating Christ. It, it, he, it, maybe not consciously, maybe not in the forefront of all of our thinking, but he's always around the edges. That's a focal point. If you can, if this makes any sense to some of you, if you can remember when you were just crazy in love with somebody, all you could, that's, you just thought about them all the time. Here, there, whatever you were doing, their, 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 their reality, their presence, what they might say, what they might think was always in the back of your mind. You were just occupied with that person. That's what occupation with Christ is, focusing our thinking in terms of imitating Christ. It's been trivialized today to some degree with these little bracelets and T-shirts, what would Jesus do? But that's really the focal point is what would Jesus do? do. I remember some years ago, uh, a couple that had just gotten married 
uh, the wife was telling me this story because it really frustrated her. And they were on their honeymoon. And after two or three days, they were out, and they, they had a little disagreement about something. And she she was upset about something. She said, you know, I was just carrying on and just all full of myself, and I was just ranting and raving and whining. And I looked over at my husband, and he was just sitting in the bed. He wasn't saying anything. He was just sort of saying, I said, are you listening to me? He said, you know. He said, I was just sitting here wondering how Jesus would handle this. And I know the man, and he was very serious, and that's exactly what he would have been thinking. And she said, he just made me so mad when he said that. But that's what occupation with Christ is. And we can only imitate our Lord if we know enough about him from his word. The trouble with most people wearing the little what would Jesus do bracelets is they don't know any doctrine, they don't know the word, and all they do is they generate their own emotional idea of Jesus which is a mental idol. And then they try to conform their thinking to this mental idol. We have to know the word in order to know who Jesus is so that we can imitate him in his thinking and in his character. And that only comes through the filling of the Spirit and the walking by the Spirit. Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. In other words, as we grow older, we should, we should get rid of distractions to our spiritual growth. As we're maturing spiritually, you're going to realize more and more that some things just don't matter anymore. They're important. You like them. You enjoy them. They're not bad or evil. They're just a distraction to the reason you're here, which is to grow to maturity. So we need to let us lay aside the sin which ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the cross was not a happy experience. The joy was his anticipation of what his work would do in freeing believers from sin and so that he could bring out believers into the body, into his body and the bride of Christ and prepare them for the future. All of that is tied up in the concept of the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That brings us to our last part. We've got everything up there except the last part, which is the sharing the happiness of God. This is the result of the previous nine stress busters, and as we apply them, it gives us a peace and tranquility in our soul. There is a relaxation. This goes beyond the initial relaxed mental attitude that begins with with uh, grace orientation, and now there's a peace, a tranquility, a contentment in our soul. And this is based not on uh, this is based on doing God's will, not on our circumstances, emotions, or people around us. So that Paul can be in prison. He can have everything around him, his friends, his uh, all the luxuries that he could uh, hope for, or he could be with nothing, and he has the same joy because it's based on a relationship with God and a mental orientation to reality. So as we focus on God's plan and provisions, we can endure the vicissitudes of life just as Jesus endured the cross. And again, Hebrews 12.2 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We use that joy. It's related not just to a, a, an emotion, but to a, the facts 
of what God is doing. So we can then, like as James says in James 1, 2, count it all joy. The term there has to do with adding everything up and coming to a conclusion that is joy. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Again, it's based on knowledge. So all of these ten stress busters or spiritual skills are designed to enable us to stay in fellowship, to walk by means of the Spirit, and to grow to spiritual maturity. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. That these things that are spoken to you are doctrine, the Word of God. So apart from doctrine, there is no spiritual life. And this completes the structure of the soul fortress so that now our soul can be fortified against all of the attacks that come from both the outside world, the sin nature, and from the devil. We can stand firm against him. See, I hit too many buttons and went to the end. Okay. I ran over time. Don't like to do that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together to be encouraged by these things, be reminded of how important your word is, and that it's only on the basis of trusting, relaxing in you, taking in your word, letting your word fortify our soul that we can have real peace, contentment, and real happiness in this life. Pray that you might keep us focused on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.